What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Before I start the show, I feel like there should be a warning. I'm reading public domain books and short stories and whatever else. Uh, Some of it may be offensive. I don't read these things before, so I don't review it, so it's kind of just by chance. So if anything in here is offensive, or most likely with these really old books, uh, bigoted, uh, don't hold me responsible. I'll be just as surprised as you are. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Well, I'm going to take a break from reading chapter books and read some short stories instead. Uh, It's October, so I'm going to read a bunch of little short scary stories. That'll be fun for you, I'm sure. And also fun for the one person in the Republic of Lithuania that listens to me. Uh, I don't know who you are. We've had this conversation before. I even dedicated the end of a, a book to you. Uh, But you're still listening, so that's nice. I was looking at my stats and saw that uh, I still have very few listeners, which means that I actually can see that there's just one person. I don't know where you are or who you are, but it says one listener in the Republic of Lithuania in uh, Vilnius that is just sitting there checking out my stuff. So, hey, it's good to see you again. Thanks for listening. Um, This week I'm going to read a short story that I uh, heard when I was a kid. I'd go to the library and get audiobooks all the time. Little books on tape back in the 70s because I'm really old. And uh, there was one that I would get over and over again and it was uh, Vincent Price reading ghost stories. And one of the stories uh, was The Water Ghost of Harrowby Hall by John Kendrick Bangs that uh, he would read and I was delighted. There was another story I wanted to read, but it's just turning out to be really long, so I'm going to read that one later. But right now, we'll just do a nice little short story, uh, The Water Ghost of Harrowby Hall, and uh, I hope you enjoy it, and I hope that you, the person in the Republic of Lithuania, also enjoy it, and uh, I'm just really flattered you're still listening to the show. What a nice person you must be. The Water Ghost of Harrowby Hall by John Kendrick Bangs. I'd tell you a little bit about the author, except that when I looked him up, he's really boring. And I'm not interested. So let's just dive into the story. The trouble with Harrowby Hall was that it was haunted. 
What was worse, the ghost did not content itself with merely appearing at the bedside of the afflicted person who saw it, but persisted in remaining there for one mortal hour before it would disappear. It never uh, appeared except on Christmas Eve. And then, as the clock was striking twelve, in which respect alone it was lacking in that originality, which in these days is the sine qua non of success in spectral life, the owners of Harrowby Hall had done their utmost to rid themselves of the damp and dewy lady who rose up out of the best bedroom floor at midnight, but without avail. They had tried stopping the clock so that the ghost, uh, would not know when it was midnight, but she made her appearance just the same. With that fearful, miastic personality of hers, and there, there she would stand until everything about her was thoroughly saturated. Then the owners of Harrowby Hall cocked up every crack in the floor with the very best quality of hemp, and over this were placed layers of tar and canvas. The walls were made waterproof, and the doors and windows likewise. The proprietors, having conceived uh, the notion that the exercised lady would find it difficult to leak into the room after these precautions had been taken, but even then, this did not suffice. The following Christmas Eve, she appeared promptly as before and frightened the occupant of the room quite out of his senses by sitting down alongside him and grazing her with her cavernous, oh, gazing with her cavernous blue eyes into his. And he noticed, too, that her long, uh, aqueously bony fingers bit. Bits of dripping seaweed were entwined and ends hanging down. And these ends she drew across his forehead until he became like one insane. And then he swooned away and was found unconscious in his bed the next morning by his host, simply saturated with seawater and fright from the combined effects of which he never recovered, dying four years later of pneumonia and nervous prostration at the age of 78. The next year, the master of Harrowby Hall decided not to have the best spare bedroom opened at all, thinking that perhaps the ghost's thirst for making herself disagreeable would be satisfied by haunting the furniture. But the plan was as unavailing as the many that had preceded it. The ghost appeared as usual in the room, that is, it was supposed she did, for the hangings were dripping wet the next morning, and in the parlor below the haunted room was a great damp spot appeared from the ceiling. Finding no one there, she immediately set out to learn the reason why. And she chose none other than to haunt the owner of the Harrowby Hall himself. She found him in his own cozy room drinking whiskey. Whiskey undiluted. And felicitating himself upon having foiled her ghostship. When all of a sudden, the curl went out of his hair and his whiskey bottle filled and overflowed. And he was himself in a condition similar to that of a man who had fallen into a water butt. Whatever that is. When he recovered from the shock, which was a painful one, he saw before him the lady of the cavernous eyes and seaweed fingers. The sight was so unexpected and so terrifying that he fainted, but immediately came to, because of the vast amount of water in his hair, which, trickling down over his face, restored his uh, consciousness. Now, it so happened that the master of Harrowby was a, a brave man, and while he was not particularly fond of interviewing ghosts, especially such quenching ghosts as the one before him, he was not to be daunted by an apparition. He had paid the lady the compliment of fainting from the effects of his surprise. 
and now that he had come to, he intended to find out a few things he felt he had a right to know. He would have liked to put on a dry suit of clothes first, but the apparition declined to leave him for an instant until her hour was up. And he was forced to deny himself that pleasure. Every time he would move, she would follow him, with the result that everything she came in contact with got a ducking. In an effort to warm himself up, he approached the fire. An unfortunate move, as it turned out, because it brought the gross directly over the fire, which immediately was extinguished. The whiskey became utterly valueless as a comforter into his chilled system because it was by this time diluted to a proportion of 90% of water. The only thing he could do to ward off the evil effects of this encounter, he did. It was to swallow uh, ten two-gallon quinine pills, whatever that is, which he managed to put into his mouth before the ghost had time to interfere. Having done this, he turned with some asperity to the ghost and said, Eh, far be it from me to be impolite to a woman, madam, but I'm hanged if it wouldn't please me better if you'd stop these infernal visits of yours to this house. Eh, I gotta sit out on a lake, if you like that sort of thing. Soak the, soak the water butt, if you wish. But do not, I implore you, come into a gentleman's house and saturate him and his possessions in this way. It's... It's damn disagreeable. Henry Hartwick Ovalthorpe, said the ghost in a gurgling voice. Well, I'm not doing that. You don't know what you're talking about. Madam, returned the unhappy householder, I wish that remark were strictly truthful. But talking about you, it would be shillings and pence, nay, uh, pounds in my pocket, madam, if I did not know you. That is a bit... Specious nonsense, returned the ghost, uh, throwing a cord of indignation into the face of the master of Harrowby. It may rank high as a repartee, but as a comment upon my statement that you do not know what you're talking about is savors of uh, irrelevant impertinence. Whatever that whole paragraph meant, you do not know that I am compelled to haunt this place year after year by inexorable fate. It is no pleasure to me to enter this house and ruin and mildew everything I touch. I never aspired to be a shower bath, but it's my doom. Do you know who I am? No, I don't, returned the master of Harrowby. I should say you were the lady of the lake, <laughs> little Sally Waters. Ah, you're a witty man for your years, said the ghost. Well, my humor is drier than yours will ever be, <laughs> returned the master. No doubt. I am never dry. I am the water ghost of Harrowby Hall, and dryness is a quality entirely beyond my wildest hope. I have been the incumbent of this highly unpleasant office for uh, 200 years tonight. How the deuce did you ever come to get elected? asked the master. Ah, through suicide, replied the specter. I am the ghost of that fair maiden whose picture hangs over the mantelpiece in the drawing room. I should have been your great, 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 great aunt if I had lived, Henry Hartwick Oglethorpe, for I was the own sister of your great, 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 great grandfather. But what induced you uh, to get this house into such a predicament? I was not to blame, sir, returned the lady. It was my father's fault. It was he who built Harrowby Hall. And the haunted chamber was to have been mine. My father had it furnished in pink and yellow, knowing, well, that blue and gray formed the only combination of color I could tolerate. 
He did it merely to spite me, and with what I deem a proper spirit. I declined to live in the room, whereupon my father said I could live there or on the lawn. He didn't care which, and that night I ran from the house and jumped over the cliff into the sea. Eh, that was rash, said the master of Harrowby. So I've heard, returned the ghost. If I had known what the consequences were to be, I should not have jumped. But I really never realized what I was doing until after I drowned. I had been drowned a week when a sea nymph came to me and informed me that I was to be uh, one of her followers forever afterwards, adding that it should be my doom to haunt Harrowby Hall for one hour every Christmas Eve throughout the rest of eternity. I was to haunt that room on such Christmas Eves as I found it inhabited, and if it should turn out not to be inhabited, I was to spend the allotted hour with the head of the house. Eh... I'll sell the place. That you cannot do, for it is also required of me that I shall appear as the deeds are to be delivered to any purchaser and divulge to him the awful secret of the house. Do you mean to tell me that on every Christmas Eve that I don't happen to have someone in that guest chamber, you are going to haunt me wherever I may be, ruining my whiskey, taking all the curl out of my hair and extinguishing my fire, and soaking me through to the skin, demanded the master. You have stated the case, Oglethorpe. And what is more, said the water ghost, it doesn't make the slightest difference where you are. If I find that room empty, wherever you may be, I shall douse you with my spectral press. Here the clock struck one. And immediately the apparition faded away. It was perhaps more of a trickle than a fade, but as a disappearance it was complete. Uh... "'By St. George and his dragon!' ejaculated the master of Harrowby, wringing his hands. "'It is guineas to hot cross buns that next Christmas there is an occupant of the spare room or I spend the night in a bathtub.' "'But the master of Harrowby would have lost his wager had there been anyone to take him up, "'for when Christmas Eve came again he was in his grave, "'never having recovered from the cold contracted that awful night.' Harrowby Hall was closed, and the heir of the estate was in London, where to him, in his chambers, came the same experience that his father had gone through, saving only that, being younger and stronger, he survived the shock. Everything in his rooms was ruined. His clocks were rusted to the works. A fine collection of watercolor drawings was entirely obliterated by the onslaught of the water ghost. And what was worse, the apartments below were drenched with the water soaking through the floors. A damage for which he was compelled to pay, and which resulted in his being requested by his landlady to vacate the premises immediately. The story of the visitation inflicted upon his family had gone abroad, and no one could uh, be got to invite him out to any function, save afternoon teas and receptions. Fathers and daughters declined to permit him to remain in their houses later than eight o'clock at night, not knowing but that some emergency might arise in the supernatural world, which would require the unexpected appearance of a water ghost on this night or any other Christmas Eve, and before the mystic hour when the weary churchyards, ignoring the rules which are supposed to govern polite society, began to yawn. That was really long, which is a lot of commas. Nor would uh, the maids themselves have aught to do with them, fearing the destruction by the sudden incursion of aqueous femininity of the costumes in which they held most dear. So the heir of Harrowby Hall resolved, as his ancestors for several generations before him had resolved, that something must be done. His first thought was to make one of the servants occupy the haunted room at the crucial moment, 
that in this he failed because the servants themselves know the history of that room and rebelled. None of his friends would consent to the sacrifice their personal comfort for his, nor was there to be found in all England a man so poor as to be willing to occupy the doomed chamber on Christmas Eve for pay. Then the thought came to the heir to have the fireplace in his room enlarged, so that he might evaporate the ghost at the first appearance, and he was felicitating himself upon the ingenuity of his plan when he remembered that his father told him how that no fire could withstand the lady's extremely contagious dampness. And then he bethought him of steam pipes. These, he remembered, could lie hundreds of feet deep in water and still retain sufficient heat to drive the water away in vapor. And as a result of this thought, the haunted room was heated by steam to a withering degree. And there, for six months, attended daily the Turkish baths, so that when Christmas Eve came, he could himself withstand the awful temperature of the room. The scheme was only partially successful. The water ghost appeared at a specified time and found the air of Harrowby prepared. But hot as the room was, it shortened her visit by no more than eh, five minutes in the hour, which time it was the nervous system of the young master was well nigh shattered and the room itself was cracked and warped to an extent which required the outlay of a large sum of money to remedy and worse than this as the last drop of the water ghost was slowly fizzling itself out on the floor she whispered to her would-be conqueror that his scheme would avail him nothing because there is still water in great plenty where she came from and the next year would find her rehabilitated and as exasperatingly saturating as ever. It was then that the natural action of the mind, in going from one extreme to the other, suggested the ingenious air of Harrowby that the means by which the water ghost was ultimately conquered, and happiness once more came within the grasp of the house of Oglethorpe. There provided himself with a warm suit of fur underclothing. Donning this with the fur side in, he placed it over a rubber garment, tight-fitting, which he wore just as a woman wears a jersey. On top of this, he placed another set of underclothing, this suit made of wool, and over this was a second rubber garment like the first. Upon his head, he placed a light and comfortable diving helmet, and so clad on the following Christmas Eve, he awaited the coming of his tormentor. It was bitterly cold night that brought to a close his 24th day of December. The air outside was still, but the temperature was below zero. Within, all was quiet. The servants of Harrowby Hall, awaiting the beating hearts, the outcome of their master's campaign against the supernatural visitor. The master himself was lying on a bed in the haunted room, clad as he already had been indicated, and then... The clock changed out of the hour of twelve. There was a sudden banging of doors. A blast of cold air swept through the halls. The door leading into the haunted chamber flew open. A splash was heard, and the water ghost was seen standing at the side of the heir of Harrowby. From whose outer dress there streamed rivulets of water, but those... Uh, whose own person deep down under the various garments he wore as, as dry and as warm as he could have wished. Aha, said the young master of Harrowby. Aha, I'm glad to see you. You are the most original man I've met, if that is true, returned the ghost. May I ask, uh, where'd you get that hat? 
Certainly, madam, returned the master courteously. It is a little portable observatory I've made for just such emergencies as this. But tell me, is it true that you were doomed to follow me about for one mortal hour? To stand where I stand and to sit where I sit? That uh, is my delectable fate, returned the lady. We'll go out on the lake, said the master, starting up. You can't get rid of me that way, returned the ghost. The water won't swallow me up. In fact, it'll just add to my present bulk. Nevertheless, said the master firmly, we will go out on the lake. But, my dear sir, returned the ghost with a pale reluctance, it is fearfully cold out there. You'll be frozen hard before you've been out ten minutes. Oh, no, I'll not, replied the master. I am deeply and warmly dressed. Come, uh, this last in tone of command that made the ghost ripple, and they started. They had not gone far before the water ghost showed signs of distress. Yeah, it walked too slowly, she said. I'm nearly frozen. My knees are so stiff now I can hardly move. I beseech you uh, to accelerate your step. I should like to oblige a lady, returned the master courteously, but my clothes are rather uh, heavy. And a hundred yards an hour is about my speed. Indeed, I think we should uh, better sit down here on this snowdrift and talk matters over. I do not. Don't do so, I beg, cried the ghost. Let's move on. I feel myself growing rigid as it is. If we stop here, I shall be frozen stiff. That, madam, said the master slowly, and seating himself on an ice cake, that is why I have brought you here. We have been on this spot about ten minutes, and we have fifty more. Take your time about it, madam, but freeze. That's all I ask you. I cannot move my right leg now, cried the ghost in despair. Hey, my overskirt is a solid sheet of ice. Oh, good, kind Mr. Oglethorpe, light a fire and let me go free from these icy fetters. Never, madam, it cannot be. I have you at last. Alas, cried the ghost, a tear trickling down her frozen cheek. Help me, I beg, I congeal. Congeal, madam, congeal, cried Oglethorpe coldly. You have drenched me in mine for two hundred and three years, madam. Tonight you have had your last drench. Ah, but I shall thaw out again, and you'll see. Instead of a comfortably tepid, genial ghost I have been in the past, sir, I shall be iced water, cried the lady threateningly. Now you won't either, replied Overthorpe. For when you are frozen quite stiff, I shall send you to a cold storage warehouse, and there you shall remain an icy work of art forevermore. Ah, but warehouses burn. So they do. But this warehouse cannot burn. It's made of asbestos. Ugh. And surrounding it are fireproof walls. And with those walls, the temperature is now and shall forever be 416 degrees below the zero point. Low enough to make an icicle of any flame in this world. Or the next, <laughs> the master added with an ill-suppressed chuckle. Oh, I added in the chuckle before I even read about it. Uh, for the last time, I beseech you, I would... Go on my knees to you, Oglethorpe, but they're not already frozen. I beg of you, do not do... Here, even the words froze on the ghost's lips, and the clock struck one. There was a momentary tremor throughout the ice-bound form, and the moon, coming out from behind a cloud, shone down on the rigid figure of a beautiful woman, sculpted in clear, transparent ice. There stood the ghost of Harrowby Hall, Conquered by the cold, a prisoner for all time. 
The heir of Harrowby had won at last, and today in a large storage house in London stands the rigid form of one who will never again flood the house of Oglethorpe with woe and seawater. As for the heir of Harrowby, his success in coping with a ghost has made him famous, a fame that still lingers about him, although his victory took place some twenty years ago, and so far from being unpopular with the, uh, with the fair sex. As he was when we first knew him, he has not only been married twice, but is to lead a third bride to the altar before the year is out. And then it just says, if you like the story, please share it with others. And that's what you get from reading from a website. New books? Sure. People like to read new books. You go to Penguin Random House and uh, take a little look at what's coming out this month. Uh, and you'd think in October, those new books would be scary books. Or Halloweenish books. But nope. We have Running with Sherman by Christopher McDougall, a story about a donkey with the heart of a hero. It's uh, coming out on October 15th. Uh, see, when Chris McDougall agreed to take a donkey from an animal hoarder, what does that mean? Just people that hoard animals? Okay. He thought it would be no harder than the rest of the adjustments he and his family had made after moving from Philadelphia to the heart of Pennsylvania Amish country. That's specific. But when he arrived, Sherman was in such bad shape he could barely move and his hair was coming out in clumps. Chris decided to undertake a radical rehabilitation program designed not only to heal Sherman's body, but to heal his mind as well. Turns out the best way to soothe a donkey is to give it a job. And so Chris decided to teach Sherman how to run. He'd heard about burrow racing, a unique type of race where humans and donkeys run together in a callback to mining days, and decided he and Sherman would enter the world championship in Colorado. Easier said than done. <laughs> in the course of Sherman's training, Chris would have to recruit several other runners, both human and equine, and call upon the wisdom of burrow racers, goat farmers, and Amish running club members, and a group of irrepressible female long-haul truckers. Along the way, he shows us the life-changing power of animals, nature, and community. So I take it this is a true story about a man who had enough time and money to train a donkey to run and hire a bunch of, a whole group of other people to help him do it. Ah, first world problems. So if you want to learn about a guy with a lot of time and money and what he does with it and a poor animal that's forced to do whatever the heck this weirdo comes up with, uh, pick up a copy of Running with Sherman by Christopher McDougall and uh, let me know what you think. So with that concludes our reading of The Water Ghost of Harrowby Hall. Uh, what did we learn? We learned that if you commit suicide near water, uh, you're going to have to be a watery ghost for all of eternity. So that sucks. Don't ever do that. Uh, if you have a ghost, you can probably outsmart it. And we also learned that whenever this story was written, I'm guessing 
a uh, hundred years ago, that uh, they had the technology to make a warehouse that'll keep things frozen for eternity. Never burn down and apparently always keep things frozen. So I don't know how that's possible. And if that is possible, why don't we have that technology now in our homes? I have no idea. Uh, when my power goes out, my everything in my fridge melts and I have to go buy all that food all over again. Um, so that just goes to show that big refrigeration is intentionally keeping us from advancing uh, just because it can make more money off of us. So maybe that's what we learned in this episode. Be sure to tune in the next one where I don't know what I'll read, but uh, it'll be something. <laughs>